This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, a New Orleans artist raises awareness about mental health issues and pushes artistic boundaries with the opening of a unique hotel and gallery. We'll talk with Robert X. Fogarty. And we'll have the latest on the challenged Caddo Parish Sheriff's Race. But first... Birmingham police are asking residents and business owners to lend a hand in fighting crime. In November, the city launched a program that encourages people to share footage from private surveillance cameras. As the Gulf States newsroom's Kat Stromquist reports, this kind of cooperation comes with risks. The program will allow people to register the cameras on their doorbell or front porch with the police department, or even stream video to officers in real time. At a news conference, Birmingham Mayor Randall Woodfin said the program will help investigators cover more ground. It's one thing for an officer to ride around, but it's another thing for the officer to already know that these small businesses are integrated within our system. Hank Sherrod is an Alabama civil rights attorney who works on police misconduct cases. He says that in general, sharing video gives law enforcement a lot of data that can be searched and analyzed in ways we can't predict. You you hope this is just something that would be a positive, that would be used to protect people, but there's always the potential when you give the state that much power for it to be abused. Other cities in the South, including New Orleans, have launched similar programs. Sherrod isn't too concerned right now, but says new technologies might cause problems in the future. Facial recognition software is known to misidentify people of color when it's applied to large amounts of video. And to an overzealous officer, Even day-to-day activities caught on video could seem illegal. So, you know, if they think something's suspicious, it wouldn't take much for them to be able to use, you know, this kind of data to get a warrant. Birmingham officials say the program is voluntary. People can choose how much access they give police. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Kat Stromquist. Every election cycle, we hear the same phrase, every vote counts. While that might not always feel accurate, one election that certainly rings true is the Caddo Parish Sheriff's Race, where Democratic candidate Henry Whitehorn beat Republican John Nicholson by one vote. Nicholson, of course, isn't going down without a fight. And after a recount failed to change the outcome, the losing candidate took the election to the courtroom. Brendan Heffernan has been covering this story for the Shreveport Bossier Advocate. We recorded this conversation before the most recent update. Today, a judge in Caddo Parish ruled the previous election void and ordered that a new runoff election be conducted. Let's start from the beginning. Tell us about each of the candidates and why do you think that in a particularly red part of the state, a Democratic candidate like Henry Whitehorn was able to draw so much support? Well, I think I'll address the second part of that question first. So Caddo Parish is a little bit unique regionally, um, you know, when it comes to sort of electoral politics. It's a bit of a blue enclave, maybe not quite as liberal as somewhere like East Baton Rouge Parish, certainly. Um, But when it comes to, you know, things like presidential elections, Caddo Parish typically does swing towards the Democrat um, candidate and Caddo Parish, about 80% of the residents of Caddo Parish live in Shreveport, um, which is a city which I believe has a 5 2 um, Democrat majority on its city council, um, although it does have a Republican mayor. So it's not, um, you know, unheard of for Democratic candidates to have success in this part of the state. 
But before, you know, we even got to this point with all this recount drama, you know, sort of the legal battle, I think it was clear that this race was going to be historic for a couple of reasons. Um, and that's mainly because the candidates would re be replacing um, Sheriff Steve Prater, who has held this seat for uh, six terms now. Um, now, he was the first Republican, you know, people often say he's the first Republican sheriff that Caddo Parish has had since the Reconstruction era, um, which is true. But he has been one of the most, um, you know, successful um, electoral politicians that this parish has seen. And his kind of the position has kind of been formed around his personality for a very long time here. And so he named Nicholson pretty early on as kind of his chosen successor. John Nicholson. Uh, most of his career has been spent as as an attorney. He's been, you know, a very prominent attorney here in Shreveport, and he was the um, a city councilor, which is where his relationship with uh, Sheriff Prater sort of began. And throughout a lot of the campaign, you know, a lot of his messaging was sort of continuing uh, Steve Prater's legacy. Conversely, Henry Whitehorn, I've is comes from a very different background. He has over four decades of uniformed law enforcement experience, whereas. Um, John Nicholson, prior to this election, has, you know, never been in one of those positions. Um, uh, Henry Whitehorn has, was the chief of police here in Shreveport for a number of years. He was the U.S. Marshal for the uh, Western District of Louisiana. Um, he was the superintendent of Louisiana State Police. He's held a number of, you know, leadership positions. You know, a lot of his effort throughout this campaign was sort of painting this picture of, you know, Caddo Parish, particularly Shreveport, um, experiencing a crime crisis uh, and saying that, you know, I'm the more qualified candidate, you know, regardless of party affiliation. And I think that was sort of uh, what centered, what his message sort of centered around and where he connected with people. Tell us about the initial results and that one vote difference. What happened immediately after? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it comes down to these two two guys in the runoff and um, it's an extremely close election the entire way through, you know, the early voting and absentee ballots came in very close and throughout the entire night. Mm -hmm. And when it came down to the very end, yeah, it was a one vote margin, which is pretty historic, um, pretty rare, even in, you know, uh, a parish where maybe 2000 people vote. This was an election where 43000 people voted uh, and it ultimately came down to one vote. Um, and I, I was not at uh, Mr. Nicholson's campaign, um, you know, event that night, but he said, you know, in his room full of supporters, you know, this margin is too close for me to contest or for me not to contest and made his intentions clear that night that he would be seeking a recount. So the recount also found just a one vote difference. And Nicholson began to question the election machines and recount process. Well, what exactly did he say? Right. So um, the recount is ordered, you know, on that that following Monday, they get to count up the votes and they find each candidate received three more votes than um, was originally tabulated. So the margin of victories did stay the same for um, Mr. Whitehorn. At, about at that same time as the result of the recount was, you know, sort of that was confirmed, um, Nicholson filed a legal complaint, you know, sort of contesting the election pointing out a few different points of sort of grievance with how the that election process was carried out. Um, I'd say, you know, one of the sort of most prominent kind of complaints that they've sort of centered their challenge around is um, an allegation that's been confirmed that there were two individuals who voted twice. There's concerns over how absentee ballots that maybe didn't have a signature 
maybe were witnessed by more than one person, you know, all these sort of things. Um, absentee ballots that weren't notarized exactly to the letter of the law um, that were allowed to be counted. People who were interdicted from voting, whose ballots were counted. Um, and also, you know, sort of the performance of voting machines that did come up, although um, as the sort of trial uh, played out, that that complaint, I think, was a little more marginalized, but essentially voting machines not working right, people having trouble casting their votes um, on election day. Um, so he puts out this complaint that kind of touches on all these different areas, kind of sort of pointing to, you know, these are sort of factors that, um, you know, were or these were irregularities that maybe sort of changed how the election could have come out and sort of alleging that he would have won had these things been followed to the letter of the law. So often these days we hear Republican candidates questioning the election integrity after losing a race. Do you think this is just something to be expected at this point? And is it at all effective? Right. You know, I think this happening uh, after, you know, as a country we've experienced something like January 6th, you know, I think it's totally fair and probably healthy to sort of um, look at, you know, these kinds of election challenges sort of in that context, um, you know, now and going forward. And at the same time, I think this is a case where you have an election um, in it's covering a really large amount of people. Um, Cato Parish has a population of over 230,000 and it comes down to one vote. Uh, so I'm pretty confident that if this was, you know, 1988, um, that we would have seen something similar. We would have seen a, a legal battle surrounding this race. Um, I think people here are definitely interpreting what's happening. Um, you know, just your average person is seeing this through the lens of, you know, maybe the 2020 presidential election and is seeing some of that, um, you know, with how they interpret it. But I'm not sure that this fits exactly in the same bucket as some of the other Republican election challenges that we've seen over the last couple of years. We are speaking with Brendan Heffernan, reporter for the Shreveport Bossier Advocate, about the 2023 Caddo Parish Sheriff's race. And then Brendan Nicholson filed a lawsuit. Tell us exactly what the suit alleges and what he is seeking out of it. Right. So he is seeking another election. Um, he he is seeking that the judge sort of, um, you know, see these these things that, that we were talking about, you know, uh, potentially people voting multiple times, people who shouldn't have been voting, voting and absentee ballots that by the letter of the law should not have been counted, that were counted when his uh, counsel sort of made the argument that there are other ballots that failed to meet that criteria that were rejected, but, you know, other ones that were allowed to go through. Um, so he is hoping to show that all these different, you know, things would have sort of corrupted the margin of victory in this election, which again is only one vote. Um, it's not as tough of a standard to prove as, you know, some other cases that have gone through that have maybe been, you know, down to six votes, down to eight votes. His hope is that the judge will order a special election, which would take place on March 23rd of 2024. The first hearing happened last Thursday. You were there. What went down and why did so many judges in the area recuse themselves? Yeah, you know, every judge in the parish did not want to be in charge of this this decision. It was not it was not a, a you know, the catbird seat um for anybody. And a lot of that had had to do at least in the written reasons for for why judges were recusing themselves was with uh, personal relationships with one or more of the candidates which isn't too surprising just sort of given the level of provenance or prominence that both these men sort of have had throughout their careers prior to this point. 
but yeah, I mean, you know, the lawsuit sort of played out about how we we were expecting, you know, most of the folks on the Caddo Parish Board of Election Supervisors were subpoenaed, you know, spoke about the process um, of the recount and the original election. Nicholson's um, camp were sort of pointing out specific ballots um, that they had, you know, sort of seen when they had that the chance to kind of look through the the absentee ballot flaps to see how they were signed, um, as well as questions regarding a lot of the notices of irregularity that were filed during the election, you know, which poll workers, you know, sort of fill out whenever something maybe doesn't go right. So a lot of specific questions um, regarding uh, those instances and uh, as well as, you know, sort of um, Whitehorn's camp kind of solidifying their argument, um, which is, you know, uh, a fair point that there's no mechanism to see um, when any ballot is contested um, to see who that person voted for or whether they even voted in the sheriff's election. So what happens next? When might we hear a decision from the judge and what are the possible outcomes? Yes. So over the weekend, um, we've now, just a few moments ago, um, Whitehorn's counsel submitted their brief um, kind of, you know, so we sort of got one last round of sort of written arguments from both camps um, dating from Saturday to today, Monday, as we're speaking. And so the judge now is going to be in a position of sort of reviewing everything. And the expectation is that we could get a response and a ruling on this as early as a tomorrow. And so from there, um, if there is a new election, as I said earlier, um, we will have that election uh, in March. Um, And if not, then I think the expectation is that um, Nicholson will appeal that decision. um, And we will have another court um, (laughs) situation on our hands. Brendan Heffernan is a reporter for the Shreveport Bossier Advocate. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Artist Robert X. Fogarty, best known as the founder of the storytelling organization Dear World, is celebrating the legacy of his late mother, artist Mary Beth Fogarty, who died by suicide in 2002. His latest project, titled Son of a Ghost, adds a new layer to his mother's original paintings as he explores grief, reconciliation, and artistic boundaries. The art project coincides with the opening of the namesake Mary Beth Hotel and Art Gallery in New Orleans. Robert X. Fogarty joins us now. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us about the inspiration behind the Mary Beth Hotel and Art Gallery? How are they connected to the deeply personal story of your mother's artwork and her tragic passing? My mom was a prolific artist. Um, She left behind more than a thousand pieces and I've had the idea for Son of a Ghost for almost a decade and it just feels really special now to have finally found the time and the opportunity in my life to really sit with her and reconcile this idea of like she was kind of a tough mom but an incredible artist and so now to look back I'm 40 now she had me when she was 40 and just feel this reverence for her and and a lot of grace for maybe her not being like the best mom. Um, and so the Mary Beth Hotel, her namesake, um, 
New Orleans has changed my life. I bought some buildings about six years ago in the CBD. Um, I have an incredible developer friend of mine, co-developer named Bo Bodier. And, you know, about a year ago, um, he's like, hey, we got to start thinking about the decorations and the art on the wall. And, of course, the, the, the buildings did not have a name back then. And I kind of pitched him on this idea of like collaborating with my mom and like maybe we can put those up and he was like yeah that sounds awesome and needless to say diane it has taken on a totally new turn um i think precisely because i had such a deep experience sitting with her work over the summer and creating these pieces collaborating with her and then finally my fabrication team my pen and mitchell richmond and Bo. You know, Maya basically called me one day. She was like, I think you got to name these buildings the Mary Beth. And so here we are um, a week out from what I hope is a, something that really moves people, you know, in, in, a, in the city that I love. And like I like to tell people that I came of age in. Now, what was your mother's artistic philosophy and how does it influence the concept of the hotel? She zigged when everyone zagged. Um, she was a working artist, a mother of three in the eighties, nineties and two thousands. And her style was male dominated, I think German expressionism. And so I think she (laughs) would be excited that it's, you know, the, the buildings are not like a white box gallery. You know, she talked a lot about, it's not the object of art that matters to not worry about the end product or the end object, but how it connects humans together, often from disparate places. Or um, She always believed that, you know, art is one of our most powerful gifts to bring people together. So I think she loved that it's like not like a traditional gallery. It's, you know, these old, beautifully redeveloped buildings where the hypothesis we have is we want you to book a unit and wake up with your new favorite artists. You know, uh, almost every unit has um, about seven to eight artists in it um, on top of the son of a ghost kind of hero piece. So I hope she'd be like, wow, this is wild, Robert. Uh, (laughs) And I hope it informs the concept that it's a little different. There is no formal art gallery. The hotel itself is the gallery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have more than 30 other Norlinian artists inside of the buildings as well. So what was the process like for you to select and collaborate with your late mother's paintings for the Son of a Ghost project? What layer are you adding to her artwork? So Maya Penn and Mitchell Richmond, I gotta shout them out, Diane, like I couldn't, couldn't have done it without them. They're the creative and fabrication team. And we sat with about 30 pieces for three days and in a retreat style setting and and asked hard questions. We picked 11 pieces and then I then took another few weeks to sit with each piece and I started to write essays or letters to her. There's one that's like a ghost, like it looks like a ghost and almost I imagined the figure and I, I bet she made it in the 1980s. She did a lot of things in the 80s. She tried to commit suicide once uh, before she successfully did in 1992. And I think the late late 80s, a lot of her work was pretty dark. Um, And so this one feels like uh, 
yeah, the story of the river sticks and the, the man that would take you across the river. He, he re, the, the figure reminded me of that. And so I wrote uh, more of a magical realism piece about my own mortality. And like, if I have to cross the river, when I have to cross the river at some point, I hope I have the money in my pockets to pay to pay the ghost to get across. Um, and I, I wrote, how much was your fare to her? Kind of like, I hope she had the coins in her pocket too, yeah. kind of thing. So that one feels special because it was actually the last one I finished. And I hadn't written anything about my own life. You know, I think as artists, we all think about our place in the world and how to create meaning. So it was quite literally the magical realism about me thinking about. And by the way, in the piece, I'm like, I have the coins. <laughs> I'm <basically laughs> like, I should have. Like, <laughs> and that was cool. To, that was the last. That was actually the last paragraph I wrote um, on the last piece I wrote on. Your letters are layered around her work. Yeah, imagine a light box. So we created this really beautiful frame, and inside is Mary Beth's original. And then so about uh, four inches on the light box on top, we cut, like, holes in it so you can see into her work. And then basically all the surface area, the negative space left on, you know, the light box, I wrote letters on top of, on that top layer, and then we encased it in epoxy. So it's got this, like, cool like slick feel yeah. to it. Um, so really multi-layered. It's like this new piece between us, but I also wanted to have this reverence for the original. You have to kind of move with the work to kind of see the whole piece. You can't see her entire piece without physically having to kind of like look inside. How do you hope this collaboration will resonate with uh, visitors to the hotel? I hope we create a space where people come to feel this intimacy with work that moves people. I think it won't be for everyone. And that's okay. You know, because some of the topics are around mental health and suicide and self-harm. And I want to declare this to you, and I'll shout it from the rooftops, man. Mental health, it's okay to talk about it. It is okay to talk about it. And as the son of this ghost who took her own life, um, I feel like I have a, a little bit of a position to be able to, to declare that, that it's okay to talk about it. Um, in particular for artists, I think our job is to push forward these conversations out of the shadows. And what a beautiful thing. I want people to feel like so much joy and love and grace for themselves and each other. It's okay. Yeah. Artist Robert X. Fogarty, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Mary Beth Hotel and Gallery will celebrate with a sneak peek on December 8th in the New Orleans Central Business District at 310 South Rampart Street from 7 p.m. till 11 p.m. More info is online at themarybethnola.com. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, reporter for the Shreveport Bossier Advocate, Brendan Heffernan, and New Orleans artist Robert X. Fogarty. 
Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.